Good morning, church. It is so great to see all of you this morning and to be here worshiping with you. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 26. And we'll be starting in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 32. Again, the book of Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 32. And we'll be looking at Paul's recounting of his conversion before King Agrippa. And this section of Acts is actually the third recounting of Paul's conversion in this book. Luke first records this event for us in chapter 9, uh, shortly after we were introduced to Paul back in chapter 8, as he was present and approving of the stoning of Stephen. And as the church was fearfully scattered by Paul's zealous and rabid persecution, we are told of Paul's miraculous conversion. Then a little bit later in chapter 22, as Paul is arrested in the temple, he requests permission to speak to the Jews there. And as he does, he tells them of his conversion and of his encounter with the risen Christ. And now in chapter 26, Paul once again delivers the testimony of his conversion in the Roman court system. So Luke records Paul's conversion, and then he records the testimony of his conversion as it was delivered to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Now, the fact that Luke records this event three times is no insignificant fact. Keep in mind that in those days, one of the ways you would place emphasis is through repetition. And the number three also in scripture uh, points to a sense of completeness and a threefold repetition was to emphasize intensity, magnitude, and fullness. Like how in Isaiah 6, when the seraphim call to one another, holy, holy, holy. So Luke's threefold recounting of Paul's conversion story, I believe, is entirely intentional. And I believe that Luke does this to refocus his book on the gospel. Let's be honest, there's quite a lot of sensational material in the book of Acts. We have speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, raising people from the dead, conspiracy to commit murder, prison breaks, the teleportation of Philip, Ananias and Sapphira being struck down dead for lying to God and on and on and on. Because of this, it would, get easy, it would be easy to get stuck in the weeds and to fixate on these wild stories. But that's not the point, is it? No, the point of Acts is to show how the Holy Spirit instituted and built Christ's church through the power of the gospel. It is the gospel that is the point of Luke's book. And so this gospel, which powerfully brought about the dramatic conversion of Paul, was not only significant in his life, but it is central to the life of the church to this day. We need to recognize that we are a people who have been transformed by the gospel. And we are a church that has been commissioned to proclaim that gospel. And the scriptures tell us that even in eternity, we will never exhaust the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us as displayed in the gospel. So if there's anything that we can take away from, our, uh, from this text or in our study in the book of Acts over the past year, it's that the gospel is the centerpiece of this book, of the scriptures as a whole, and of all history. So with that, let us turn to our text in Acts 26. Starting in verse 12, here is the word of the Lord. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all 
fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they will find him to be a perfect savior. As we look to your word this morning, I pray that we would be attentive to what you would have for us. If there's sin, I pray that you would convict us of sin and would your kindness lead us to repentance. We pray all of these things in the precious and holy name of your son. Amen. The text this morning places us in the middle of Paul's address to the Roman civil leaders, namely Governor Festus and King Herod Agrippa II. You'll notice the phrase in this connection at the start of verse 12. Uh, obviously, this phrase ties the context of this section to the preceding verses, which we looked at last week. As Paul begins to recount his experience on the road to Damascus, he is being clear that his journey was in connection to his ruthless and relentless persecution of the Christian church. It's important to see here that Paul does not gloss over his sinful past. Rather, he is open and honest about who he was prior to his conversion. For the Christian, we do not need to fear our sin being made known because our sin has been paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, this does not mean that we need to revel in our sin. We certainly should not take pride nor rejoice in our sinful past, but we do not need to fear our sin being made known. For it is against the backdrop 
of our sin, which rightfully condemns us, that we can see the beauty of the gospel. Only by recognizing what wretches we are can we rightly see how amazing his grace truly is. Then in verse 13, we begin to see, or Paul begins to speak about his encounter with the risen Christ. He says that at midday, he saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around him and those who journeyed with him. This light that shone from heaven was all-consuming, and it was so powerful that it knocked them all to the ground. In our day, we have a proliferation of Christians who want to place an artificial distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes this manifests itself in folks like Andy Stanley, who says that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And it's ridiculous because the Bible, which is comprised of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, the Bible is one book. And the purpose of this book is the revelation of who God is and of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. So the Old and New Testaments are actually one testament to who God is and to what he is doing through the person and work of Christ. So we cannot unhitch from the Old Testament. That would make the New Testament and therefore the Christian faith completely untenable. So unhitching is clearly wrong, but even in some other cases, some Christians will hold the Old and New Testaments together, but they'll posit a fundamental difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, as if they were different gods. Usually you'll hear them say things like, well, I'm just so glad we don't have to deal with the God of the Old Testament, you know, that angry and wrathful God. I'm, I'm so glad that now we just have Jesus who's just loving and gracious and affirming and yada, 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 yada. Now, this type of statement, right, it reveals, among other things, a foundational misunderstanding of the nature of God and of the triune relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But putting that aside, it demonstrates that the person saying this does not recognize that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. That the God revealed to us in the Old Testament does not change, and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but is distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. And we see this on display here in Paul's conversion story. One of the things that is consistent throughout the Old Testament is that when people come into contact with the living God, the immediate response is fear and trembling. The glory of God is so overwhelming that sinners immediately recognize their unworthiness to even be in his presence. Like when Adam and Eve hid themselves upon transgressing the commandment of God, or when all of Israel trembled as God met with them on Mount Sinai, or when Isaiah, upon seeing the glory of God, said, woe is me. And now, here in the New Testament, post-resurrection, we see that the glory of Christ is so overwhelming that sinners were immediately driven to the ground. So we see that the glory of God, as revealed in the Old Testament, and the glory of the Son, is that same magnificent and awe-inspiring glory that leaves no question as to who we are as sinners, and to who he is as God. We then see that in our text that upon being driven to the ground, Paul says that he hears a voice calling out to him in the Hebrew language, asking him, why are you persecuting me? The voice then says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we should be able to understand this image of a goad or a cattle prod and recognize that God was explaining to Paul the futility of resisting his will. 
And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, believed that this phrase was sent to Paul as a warning not to resist at this moment, though his inclination may have been to do so. But I really appreciate how F.F. Bruce understands Jesus' use of this phrase. He says that this phrase, quote, suggests that there was already in the depths of Paul's mind a half-conscious conviction that the Christian case was true. Stephen's arguments were perhaps more cogent than Paul allowed himself to admit, and his demeanor at his trial and in his death made a deep impression on Paul. It was probably in large measure to stifle this conviction and impression that Paul threw himself so furiously into the campaign of repression. But the goad kept on pricking his conscience until at last the truth that Jesus had risen indeed burst forth into full realization and acknowledgement as he appeared to Paul in person and spoke to him by name outside the walls of Damascus, end quote. So it seems that through the ministry of Stephen, the imperishable seed of the new birth was sown in the heart of Paul and that Paul's journey to Damascus was his old sin nature warring against the truth of the gospel as it was taking root in his heart. And as Paul asked who was speaking to him, we see the resurrected Christ reveal himself to Paul. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We see here the inseparable nature of Christ and his church. To persecute the church of Christ is to persecute Christ himself. And this should be a comfort to us as the church, that Christ feels the pain that we feel, that he walks through the difficulty that we walk through, that he endures the persecution we endure. We should find peace in the fact that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our good shepherd is with us every step of the way. Jesus then tells Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. We see that Paul is commissioned into the service of the risen Christ and that he is to deliver the gospel of Christ to the nations. Jesus also tells him that he will deliver him from his people and from the Gentiles. We see here the grounding of Paul's confidence. Paul knew that whatever happened to him, Christ would protect him from the schemes of his enemies, be it his own people, the Jews, or the Gentiles. And Paul knew that whatever happened, the gospel would go forth. For God was working through Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. Then in verse 19, Paul begins to directly address King Agrippa. Calvin indicated that this was likely because Festus and the Romans did not know what a heavenly vision meant. We, we need to remember that the ancient Roman worldview was vastly different from that of the Jews. So they did not have a framework to make sense of what Paul was saying, whereas Agrippa, being a Jew, could. And this reality is still true today. Many unbelievers do not have a worldview that can make sense of what the scriptures tell us. They have been so inundated and indoctrinated by materialism, enlightenment thinking, Darwinian evolution, Freudian psychology, and a whole host of other trash that even the most basic Christian claim that we were created by God is almost nonsensical. So when dealing with unbelievers, there's almost a sense in which we need to show them the incoherence of their own worldview before we can put forth the superiority of the biblical worldview. Paul then explains to Agrippa that he delivered Christ's message 
to the Jew first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. And his message for both Jew and Greek was the same, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul then says that it was for this reason that the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, this statement directly contradicts the testimony of the Jews back in Acts 24. They claimed that he was starting a riot and profaning the temple, but they weren't trying to kill him because he was starting riots and profaning the temple. No, they were trying to murder Paul because the gospel he proclaimed was fundamentally against their own man-made traditions and because he carried this gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. Paul's final appeal to Agrippa comes in verses 21 and 22. He explains that to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul explains that this message of a crucified and risen Savior was exactly what Moses and the prophets proclaimed. He did not attempt to unhitch himself from the Old Testament, but rather he saw the person and work of Christ as the central key to understanding rightly what the Old Testament taught. Now at this point, Festus cannot believe what he is hearing, and he cries out that Paul is out of his mind. Now, although there was nothing crazy in Paul's testimony, uh, Festus still attributes it to madness. Again, this was not because of any absurdity on Paul's part, either perceived or actual, but it was fundamentally because Festus rejects the gospel and that which he doesn't understand. We see here the illogical nature of unbelief. Although Paul was clear and articulate and his arguments were reasonable and concise, Festus cannot deal with the reality of the resurrection. So because these things are spiritually discerned, he has no choice but to claim that Paul is crazy. As Calvin put it, because the gospel is hidden from the unbelievers whose minds Satan is blinded, Festus thinks that Paul is a brain sick fellow who simply matters or handles matters intricately. Again, we see this same sort of thing today. Regardless of how reasonable biblical truth is, the unbelieving world cannot accept it. For to accept biblical truth puts one in the position of having to reckon with the reality of their own sin and of the holiness of God. The only recourse for the unbeliever is to mock, so as to avoid the reality of their creator. Paul then explains to Festus that he is in his right mind and that King Agrippa can attest to what he is saying. If you recall back in verse three of chapter 26, uh, which we looked at last week, we are told that Agrippa was familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Now, the Greek word, which is translated familiar with, is the, in the ESV is the word nostes, which literally means one who knows. And in certain contexts, such as this, it is often translated as expert, which is actually how it's translated in the King James and the New American Standard. In other words, it's not that Agrippa simply read about it on Facebook or that he simply Googled a few articles about it. Rather, he was well-versed in all the customs and controversies of the Jews. He was well acquainted with what was taught in the law and the prophets concerning the Messiah and concerning resurrection. He was well aware of who Jesus was and of the fact that he was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate. And he was well aware of the Christian claim that he had risen from the dead. 
So Agrippa knew that what Paul was saying was not absurd. Paul then asks a very pointed question, followed by a, by a very pointed statement. He asks, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now, this was a very strategic move on Paul's part, because by asking this question, he was essentially backing Agrippa into a corner and forcing him to deal with Paul's testimony. You see, Festus had already labeled Paul as insane and his testimony, the ravings of a lunatic. So by asking Agrippa this question, Agrippa now has to choose between affirming the prophets and consequently affirming the legitimacy of Paul's testimony, which would make him a crazy person along with Paul, or he could reject Paul's testimony, meaning that he would also consequently be rejecting what was taught by Moses and the prophets, which would anger his subjects, the Jews. So if he says, yes, Paul, I do believe, then he'll lose all respect of the Romans. And if he says, no, I don't believe, then he will effectively lose his ability to govern over the Jews. So Agrippa, recognizing this, shrewdly counters Paul's question with another question. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response should be the response of every Christian. Paul explains that his desire, his motivation for everything he's done since his conversion is so that all who hear him might become as he is. Whether I get five minutes or five hours with you, King Agrippa, I pray that God would grant you and everyone else who hears me the gifts of repentance and faith so that you might become as zealous for the gospel as I am, except for these chains. Do we have that same sense of urgency? When was the last time someone asked you that question? Uh, Ma'am, look, I don't know you and we're just sitting here waiting for takeout and you would try to persuade me to be a Christian? Uh, sir, look, I'm only trying to drop off your Amazon package. And in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Hey, look, I only called you up here to tell you the doctor will be with you in a few minutes. And you would try to persuade me to be a Christian? Right, we don't have the same sense of urgency that Paul did. Paul knew that whatever time he did have, he would make the most of it for the sake of the gospel. And we should do the same. Now, after this, Agrippa and Festus and Bernice leave to begin their deliberation. And according to our text, their deliberation was fairly short. First, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And this was actually the same verdict of the magistrates in Philippi back in Acts 16, of Galileo the proconsul of Achaia in Acts 18, and of Festus himself back in Acts 25. Throughout the book of Acts, the Romans recognized that there was nothing criminal about Paul's message or his actions, which is somewhat ironic when you really think about it. Because as the Jews rejected their Messiah and rejected the apostolic message, we see over and over and over again the vindication of the gospel message by the Gentiles. At this point, Agrippa admits that they would have released Paul, but because of his appeal to Caesar, they have no choice but to send him to Rome. And that's where our text ends. I'm sure there was a lot more that happened and a lot more that was said during this particular event. And although those sorts of things are, are fun to speculate about, uh, we need to learn to be content with what God has given us in his providence, in his word. Rather than speculating or wishing that we had more information, we should rest assured that God has given us everything we need for life 
and godliness. So even if we would like more details, we can trust that God has given us in this record, what he has given us is sufficient. Now, uh, Pastor Brad mentioned last week that these narrative portions are often difficult to work through, uh, mainly because they do not provide us with explicit doctrinal instruction. Uh, Despite this, however, these narrative portions should not be neglected. As Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable, including Leviticus, including Revelation, right? Including the genealogies, and yes, including the narrative portions. We are not free to neglect any part of scripture because all of scripture is making us complete and is equipping us for every good work. Now, even though there isn't explicit doctrinal instruction um, taught in this passage, there are a couple of crucial things that I think Paul's conversion shows us about the gospel. The first thing that I want to highlight is that this passage uh, shows us uh, things concerning the root of the gospel. We live in a day where so many professing Christians are confused about the gospel. I'm sure um, many of you have seen those man on the street type videos where they'll walk around asking people questions that they should know the answers to, right? And it's embarrassingly funny to watch. They usually ask questions like, who's the president or what planet are we on? And whenever people like give their answers, it just makes you cringe. Well, there are several of these types of videos at Christian conferences and even at our own Southern Baptist Convention asking people in attendance, what is the gospel? And you would be appalled at some of their answers. But before we go pointing the finger, I think we should be willing to take a good hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, if someone were to come here to North Clay and ask us, ask us that same question, what kind of answers would we give? Would there be a consistent answer across the congregation? Would we uncover hidden heresies in our midst? Would households be divided or at least contradicting one another in their answers to this, to this question? Definitely sobering to think about. But at any rate, if we are to understand the gospel, if we are to understand Paul's conversion, then we must understand that the gospel has its root its foundation, its starting point in the person and work of Christ. Now, with the rise of so many false Christs in our age, such as the Christ of Mormonism, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or of Islam, or the New Age, we have to make sure everyone understands that we are speaking of the Christ of the Bible. We are speaking of the virgin-born, incarnate, second person of the Trinity, not some mere moral teacher not the archangel Michael, and certainly not the offspring of Elohim and one of his goddess wives who was once a man who attained to godhood. No, we are speaking of the Christ of the Bible. And if we do not have the Christ of the Bible, then we do not have the gospel. You see, there is no gospel, no good news, if Christ is not fully God. There is no gospel if Christ is not fully man. There is no gospel if Christ does not fulfill every jot and tittle of the law through his active obedience. There is no gospel if Christ does not lay his life down as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people, taking upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf. 
There is no gospel if Christ is not dead and buried to rise again on the third day. And there is no gospel if Christ does not ascend to the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords with all authority in heaven and on earth where he rules and reigns as our King and ever lives to make intercession for us as his people. There is no gospel apart from this Christ. In Ephesians 2, as Paul explains the gospel, he says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We see that it is only through Christ that a sinner is brought from death to life. It is because of the accomplishment of Christ in his sinless life, his sin atoning death and his sin defeating resurrection that we have our hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. So the gospel is ultimately about what God is doing to save his people through his son, Jesus. And apart from the person and work of Christ, there is no salvation. There are many people in our day that think that salvation is rooted in a desire to be a better person. As virtuous as it may be to be a better person, simply being a better person won't save anyone, right? Had Paul just decided to be a better person and just decided, I'm going to stop persecuting Christians, he still would have been dead in his trespasses and sins. No, Paul didn't just come to realize that he'd rather be nice to Christians. Paul met Christ. There are others who think that salvation is first and foremost about some sort of emotional experience. You could go to church every week. You could have a correct understanding of the Bible. You could even love your neighbor. But if you haven't had a true emotional awakening, then you haven't encountered the gospel. But again, Paul did not have some sort of emotional breakdown which caused his salvation. He didn't get in touch with his emotions and determined to be his authentic self. No, Paul came face to face with the risen Christ. Now, hopefully here uh, at this church, everyone understands that the gospel is not about emotional experiences or about being a better person. But we too can often make the same mistake of placing the root of the gospel in something other than the person and work of Christ. Some will say that salvation is rooted in a decision that we've made, that their salvation is rooted in the fact that they walked an aisle or they prayed a prayer and raised their hand. I see that hand. But Paul wasn't saved because of anything he did. No, Paul was saved because of what Christ did. For Reformed folks like us though, I think the most common mistake that we make is in acting as though salvation is rooted in correct doctrine. Now, don't get me wrong. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm all about doctrinal precision. And if I'm being honest, I can get carried away sometimes trying to make sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. And as good and well as that is, what ends up happening is that we sometimes unintentionally make the mistake of acting as though salvation requires more than faith in Christ. Sometimes we act as though salvation is found in nowhere else than in confessional theology. Or that as an atom, I'll die. So also in the correct eschatological formulation, all shall be made alive. Or that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Calvin's theology, as articulated in the Institutes. Right? As Vody likes to say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. While true doctrine must never be rejected, and true doctrine, doctrine should always be pursued, we sometimes forget the fact that doctrine doesn't save. If that were the case, then the thief on the cross would not have been saved. And Paul, for that matter, would not have been saved on the Damascus Road. No, 
It is not right doctrine that saves, but it is Christ and only Christ who saves. We see in Paul's conversion that there's no doubt whatsoever that what blinded him, what knocked him to the ground, what caused him to turn from persecuting Christ to becoming an apostle of Christ was Christ himself. It wasn't intellectual or moral enlightenment. It wasn't an emotional experience. It wasn't the acceptance or affirmation of particular doctrines. No, it was Christ and Christ alone. So understanding that the gospel finds its root in the person and work of Christ, we also see the necessary fruit that the gospel produces in the life of God's people. In Ezekiel's vision of the new covenant, he sees that God will give his people, his spirit, and a new heart. Not only that, but this monergistic act of God would necessarily result in his people walking according to his statutes and being careful to obey his rules. In other words, the necessary fruit of the gospel is that we begin to mortify our sin and walk in obedience to God and his word. If we have been born again by the power of the gospel, that same power sanctifies us and transforms us into the image of Christ. And we see that in Paul's conversion, right? Upon being born again through an encounter with Christ, we see that Paul's life immediately changes. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't growth and development that took place over time in Paul's life. It's not as though he was saved and immediately began planting churches. It's not as though there was no sanctification that was needed in Paul's life before he could eventually take the gospel to Rome. I mean, just in terms of timeline, Paul was converted around 35 AD, and he stands before King Agrippa in Acts 26 around 59 AD. So you're looking at about 24 years of God's working in Paul before he begins his journey to Rome. That being the case, however, we still see that as soon as Paul is converted, there is an immediate change that takes place. He immediately abandons his crusade against the church and begins to pursue Christ. He immediately starts putting his sin to death and immediately begins following Christ in obedience and faith. And this reality is still true today. When sinners are born again, they immediately turn from pursuing sin to pursuing Christ. Though there may still be sin that needs to be put to death, and there is still sanctification that will continue to take place until we are glorified, we see that the repentance is immediate. The change in direction from pursuing sin to pursuing Christ is immediate. For the believer, we recognize our own sinfulness. I know better than anyone the depths of my own sin. But what's different for the believer is that even though we may still struggle with sin, our desire is to obey Christ. We desire to root out the sin in our lives so that we may look more and more like our Savior. Even when we are called out by our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even when our sin is exposed, we rejoice that God is revealing our sin to us so that we may put it to death. And this can look different for different people, right? Uh, maybe for husbands, it may be that pre-conversion, you were indifferent and passive towards your wife, right? You loved her, but you didn't necessarily desire to lay your life down for her. And now post-conversion, you desire to love your wife like Christ loves, loves his church. Or, or perhaps uh, for wives, maybe at one point, the idea of submission to your husband was utterly detestable to you. 
But since being born again, right, you desire to love and submit to your husband out of love and submission to Christ. Or even for children, perhaps you recognize that at one point you had no desire to obey your parents, except maybe out of self-preservation. But since being changed by the gospel, you now desire to obey your parents because you desire to obey the Lord. The gospel always results in a changed life. Is true gospel change complete upon conversion? Of course not. But is it real and immediate? Absolutely. We see that Paul was one way, then he meets Christ. And that encounter causes Paul to immediately change. He went from persecuting Christ to proclaiming Christ. He went from trying to destroy the church to building the church. When sinners are born again, they go from being on the road to destruction to being on the road to life. They go from having hearts of stone to having hearts of flesh. They go from their natural desire for sin and rebellion to having a new nature that seeks to honor and glorify God. So what does this all mean? And what are the things that we can take away from this? Well, there are a couple points of application that I would like to make in closing. First, we need to be sure that we are not confusing the root of the gospel with the fruit of the gospel. The root of the gospel is the person and work of Christ. Then upon being transformed by the person and work of Christ, we see the gospel produce fruit in the life of the believer. But the fruit is not the gospel. It is the result of the gospel. Sadly, though, we, we can have a tendency to get those things mixed up. For instance, does a gospel-transformed life result in a better marriage? 100%. But what often happens is we end up pointing people to the better marriage rather than pointing them to Christ. We end up pointing to the gift rather than to the gift giver. We end up pointing people to the fruits of salvation rather than pointing them to Christ, who is the author of salvation. As we evangelize and make disciples, we need to be sure that we are putting forth Christ as the foundation and not something else. As one of my favorite theologians likes to say, what you win them with is what you win them to. Are we winning people to Christ or just to the stuff that Christ brings? Because if we're just winning people to a happy life, then we can't be upset when they hit hard times and they abandon the faith. We need to be sure that we are not exchanging the root of the gospel with the fruit of the gospel. As the old hymn says, it is on Christ, the solid rock that we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Second, secondly, recognizing that the gospel will inevitably produce fruit in the life of the believer, we need to examine ourselves daily to see if we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Going back to Ezekiel, what is the necessary outcome of those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart? It is that they will walk in accordance with his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. If we do not have the desire to walk in obedience to Christ, if we do not have the desire to put our sin to death, then we are right to question if we have truly been changed by Christ. Again, there was no question that Paul met Jesus as evidenced by his changed life. Do you see the evidence of true gospel change in your life? If we have repented and turned to God, then let us perform deeds in keeping with repentance. 
Let the fruit of our lives bear witness to the person and work of Christ. And finally, we should learn from Paul's example of boldness and his confidence in the gospel. Paul was not concerned with his own life because his life was hidden together with Christ. You have to remember that by this time, right, Paul had endured tremendous suffering throughout his ministry. He was whipped with 39 lashes on five different occasions. At three separate times, he was beaten with rods. He was stoned, imprisoned, unjustly tried, and had many attempts on his life. Yet his boldness for the gospel was only strengthened. His confidence in the victory of the gospel was only reinforced. And his heart for the lost was only more compassionate, desiring that they would come to faith in Christ. We live in such a fickle time where even the slightest inconvenience causes our zeal to waver. And we are often so prone to selfishness that even the idea, the thought of God saving our enemies is initially met with contempt. Would God grant us the strength to stand tall in the face of persecution? Would God grant us a heart that desires all who hear us to become as we are, redeemed sinners who have been raised to life and washed by the blood of Christ? And would God grant us the courage to make the most of every opportunity to boldly proclaim his gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you that through the gospel, we find a uh, sufficient atonement for sin and an alien righteousness imputed to us. And we thank you that by your spirit, you are working to sanctify us, that we may be conformed to your image. I pray that we would never lose sight of what you have done for us in the gospel. And I pray that we would boldly proclaim that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. We pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.